Now I know it's been a while since Matt's comments about aliens were the hot takes of the day. But it's been bothering me ever since because on a deeper level, I think there's a theological and philosophical argument that is important around the idea of aliens and its compatibility with belief and a God who created the universe. So that's what we're going to dive into right now. Um, oh, I almost forgot. Welcome to the Blazing Laser Show. I'm Blazing Laser, your host, Blazing Laser Weiss. Uh, so I want to dive into this, but before I do, I don't want to take anything Matt says out of context. And so I want to play for you the clip of Matt talking about this that I think is the most relevant clip in its entirety. It's about a minute long, and you'll hopefully bear patiently with me. Let's listen to him express his thoughts. Let's move on now to reading the YouTube comments. This is from Terrence, says, Matt, wouldn't your belief in UFOs disprove your Catholic convictions? Uh, I don't see how it does at all. You know, I know, I know a lot of people think that it does, whether Catholic or, or whatever. You know, I, I know there are a lot of Christians who think that their religion um, precludes them from entertaining the idea that there could be other intelligent life forms uh, in, out there in the physical universe. And I, I just don't see that as the case. You know, this is one of the many subjects that the Bible doesn't address. The Bible doesn't say anything about it. The Bible never says that there are no other intelligent life forms out there. It never says that there are. You know, um, that, that's, the Bible's not interested in that question. Which doesn't mean it's not an interesting question or an important one. Um, so, I, I think as Christians, we can, we can arrive at different conclusions on it. Um, but I don't think that our faith necessitates that we arrive at one conclusion or another. Okay, now I, I really felt that it was important to hear Matt say that, all of that, because this is the main part that I want to talk about. And I also want to note, Matt, that you did say that you love hearing good arguments, so I hope you'll enjoy this one. I want to divide this into two sections. The first is uh, the idea that philosophically, even if we can accept that there are aliens, we shouldn't have a, that shouldn't have, be a problem to believers in God. And the second idea, like, could it even be that there is such a thing, right? Like two separate, like, let's grant that there are, is that, does that raise any problems for us that there are such beings? And the second, could there even be such beings? Okay. So first of all, um, the argument here and, and one that's been made by many people, not just Matt Walsh, I happen to respect him and I think he expressed it pretty clearly. But the, the argument by many people is that, you know, there seems to be evidence these days coming out of everywhere. Pilots claiming they saw strange phenomenon, army people saying they saw strange, other people who are respectable, not just like some wacko living out in the middle of nowhere, but it's a lot of evidence that seems to support this idea. Hey, aliens, just a lot of evidence. Okay. First of all, the baseline of this suggestion uh, that's being brought out into the public is not that there are aliens living a million light years from here who are part of some advanced nation that has transcended their, you know, and they're all telepaths. No, the point is, especially, you know, what's, what's being brought into the public now, that the aliens are here, right? So that would mean that there is a race of beings that is so advanced, so much more intelligent than us, that they have used their ability to create technology come from who knows how many light years away to our galaxy, to our planet. They're here among us. We can't detect them. That's how advanced they are beyond us. And they're observing us or doing whatever they're doing and then leaving. I think that if you could accept such a thing as a religious person, it should trouble you immensely. One of the most important and fundamental ideas 
of religious people and something that I tremendously believe, not just believe, but know for a fact, because I've delved into it deeply and could make many videos about it, is that the evidence for God is very real. Uh, sadly, the online notion today that, oh, you believe in a cloud wizard, her, 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 is, is just nonsense. These people don't have any thought behind that. On the whole, a careful examination of the evidence is pretty clear that the notion of a god who designed the world very carefully is compelling beyond a reasonable doubt. Right? We don't like to say that it's 100% because, oh, if I could find any tiny hole, but compelling beyond a reasonable doubt. On the whole, the more rational choice, whether to accept that the universe is just a chaotic, uh, crazy bunch of nonsense coincidentally thrown together in a mishmash of whatever and where it came from, who knows, and flick that switch, whatever. All these different questions. On the whole, again, could, could there be such an argument? But is that argument more compelling than God? No, definitely not. And it doesn't seem like even most major scientists at this point, you know, who are willing to at least talk about the subject at length and will admit that, yes, there's, there's compelling rationales to the idea that there's a designer of the universe, right? Okay, so that would mean that this alien species that's far more intelligent than us, shouldn't they all believe in God? Now, as a Jew, maybe I would be troubled by this slightly less, but, but only a tiny bit. For sure, as a Christian, Christians heavily believe in proselytization. Why aren't these aliens coming here and telling us, hey, stupid humans, um, or, or not stupid humans, maybe they're very friendly and nice, and they'll explain to us in the most beautiful way. There's a God. Why aren't they here educating us and helping raise us? I mean, this is like such a basic Christian concept. These aliens have figured out that there is a God. They know it way better than us. And if they don't, well, that's a big problem. Because why would a species that's way more advanced and way more intelligent than us not know and accept and believe in God if we think that it is rational and clear that the right choice is to accept God? That should bother any Christian thinker. Like, if you think there are aliens, why aren't the aliens coming and telling us, guys, God is real. And it's very obvious that the world is created by a superior, higher being. It's a little bit of a puzzle to me why that doesn't bother people. Now, that's part one, the end of part one. Let's move to part two, which is to me the more important and more interesting part. I think that religion does actually preclude this whole thought process from getting off the ground anyway. And I'll tell you why. The entire idea that we're expressing is based on the notion that, in fact, um, intelligence is something that could, that, that's just the reality. You know, maybe God created intelligence, sort of an almost Aristotelian thing, like God created intelligence and just let it develop manifestly. But that is a very anti-Judeo-Christian um, view. It's certainly anti-Abrahamitic, if you want to call it that. Why? Because the Abrahamitic point of view, the Torah point of view, is that religion is extremely, extremely uh, purposeful in its design and intent. What is that purpose? Well, actually, you don't have to listen to me. You can listen to the Darach Hashem, one of the finest Jewish philosophers who ever lived, a brilliant um, writer, uh, was written by Rav Moshe Chaim Litzato, also the author of Mesilas Yisharim, The Path of the Just, one of the primary ethical treatises in the Jewish faith. And his Derech Hashem, which means the way of God, one of the most influential uh, books in Judaism on understanding 
the philosophy behind why God does what he does. Um, I highly recommend this edition, excellent edition. Um, really delves into a, a lot of the behind the scenes. And again, a lot of it, I guess, it's, it's just stuff that if you deeply think about, it's very rational and understandable. So let's see, what does he say about mankind? All right, now, even though I like using this one, uh, I did want to put it on the screen for everybody to see. So let's see. Um, we're going to put it up on the screen for everyone. Here we go. Right? Says the Derech Hashem. This was written hundreds of years ago. This is not a modern book. This is a fantastic, ancient volume on Jewish philosophy. Well, not so ancient, but still. Bechiras uh, Adam. Concerning man having free choice. Right? Kvar Zacharnu, we have already explained. Man was created uniquely to attain closeness to God. This is a across-the-board Judeo-Christian belief. The purpose of man is to do good and earn good in the next world. The ultimate good of which is to be close with God. I'm, I'm not again. I'm not an expert in Christian theology. But I know they accept this, right? The kingdom of heaven, that's the ultimate goal. That is the point of man. The point of man is to have free choice and to utilize that free choice to earn himself a spot close to God, which is the ultimate greatness, right? You know, whether, whether you're Christian or a Jew, again, I can, I can only really speak as an expert, even that to a limited extent, but as a somewhat expert on the Jewish faith. We're not talking about like, oh, you're going to be eating grapes and lying on a comfortable couch all day. That's, that's not the goal in Judaism, and I'm fairly certain that's not the goal in Christianity. The goal is to become the greatest person you can, and then the next world that will translate to you being able to feel closer to God, which is some kind of an ultimate pleasure that is very difficult to fathom for us human beings. Okay, so, Kfar Zacharno Yesa Adam uh, this is the ultimate thing about human beings. We already mentioned that they are here to become close to God. The point of this is that human beings are somewhere between perfect and imperfect, right? We have a perfect element to us, the soul. The soul is perfect. It is unblemished when it is given to us. And imperfect, right? Which we'll get to in a second what that means. The body is imperfect. Um, and therefore, because of this, which he's going to explain how this system works, we have the ability to acquire perfection. That was a long sentence. I'm sorry if it was a little bit of a run-on, but I'm going to translate it now. It basically means that um, it was important that a person choose this by himself because if we were forced to pick one way or the other, then we would not be called the owner, right? We would not be called the owner of our, or the, he says here, the master of perfection. But what it really means more is we would not be called the owner of our perfection um, because you were forced to acquire it by another, right? Um, sort of like if a person was, was forced at gunpoint to uh, commit a sin, at least in, in the Torah's view, we do not consider him to own that sin, right? If a person was forced at gunpoint uh, to eat a non-kosher animal, he, that is not something he is considered to even have to uh, repent for, 
he, he's not considered the owner of that sin, right? And, and it makes a lot of sense. If you are forced beyond your ability to resist to do something, then there's, there's just something not. If you resist it as much as you can within the Torah's guidelines, and there's no more that you can resist, right? Because the Torah does not want you to give up your life to, let's say, not eat a kosher animal. That's in the laws of the Torah. So then there's nothing you can do, right? The Torah does say you have to give up your life for idol worship. So if a person would force you at gunpoint to worship an idol, you would have to say no. But let's say that person would physically take you, literally overpower you and grab your head and force it to the floor in front of the idol, right? And literally rip your mouth open and force you to mouth the words like, I love you, idol God, right? That's not you. Okay, so the same thing. If God would put you in a situation where you were more pushed in either direction, then this would be a very problematic thing because the goal of you becoming the best you you could be, right? The, the path to perfection of the being the most refined, greatest human being within the potential that you have would not be fulfilled. So therefore, God does this uh, extremely important thing, which is that he says that I want you to be the owner of your, your own perfection. This topic, really, I'm glossing it over, deserves a tremendous amount of thought and energy, right? It, 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 within it is contained the question of why God created human beings specifically as opposed to some other creation. Why are we the way we are? All right. Why didn't God, if he wanted to do the most good possible, why didn't he just create other gods? Why isn't there just like a civilization of God beings who are all just enjoying themselves to the max? It's all contained within this quote, and I, there's just no time in this video to delve into it, but I would love to, if people are interested, make a video about that one day. Um, fine. And then God's purpose would not be fulfilled, which is for him to acquire his own perfection. Alkane, therefore, Hashem, therefore, was forced, but not really forced, meaning it was necessary for the plan that man be completely balanced. What does this mean? Let's see. Man would not be sort of leaning in either direction. Man would be empowered with the pure free will. said to do whatever he wants. Vayachilis and the, it would be his choice. Gam came the other look nice Aizmahem said to pick whichever one he wants. This is the, the most important part. You ready? Al therefore, Nivra Adam Hara, man was created with an inclination towards doing good and an inclination towards doing evil. And free will was placed in um, his path, or in his, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was in his hand to do, pick whichever one he wants. Okay, we need to read a little bit more, and then we can finalize this discussion. In order for this to be fully realized, man had to be created with two distinct sides. Side one, the Hainu Minishama, She. There had to be a neshama. There had to be a neshama. I'm sorry, neshama sichlus vizaka. I apologize. A man had to create it from a pure intellectual soul. That has nothing to do with this world. The guf and a body that is, you know, just dirt and dust and nothing. Shakal adamehem yita Each one of them separately. The soul, as a distinct entity, 
wants to go in one direction, and the guf, the guf wants to go towards this world. Therefore, they are constantly in battle with each other. And um, this is that, that's as far as we need to go. I want you to really think about what we just read. Let's, let's, let's unpack it. Man is a very unique creation. If one looks at the world, one finds that there is no other creation that has self-doubt or lack of understanding of its purpose and its mission, right? In fact, it's, it's quite simple to see that a lion doesn't doubt what its mission is. Its mission is to be the best lion that it could possibly be. A, uh, right? A, I don't know, an ant doesn't have doubt itself. It doesn't think it's a great ant either, by the way. The ant knows that it's an ant. It doesn't. It doesn't see itself as like, oh, I'm I'm the best ant there is. No, I'm an ant. That is it. I am, and and they are all in perfect fulfillment of their purpose. They live their lives to the fullest extent, right? The alligator is an alligator. It is. It is neither bad or good. It is a. It is an alligator. That is the baseline standard. The baseline standard of alligator is alligatorness. That's it. Uh, in the same con- in the same thing, if you, if you want to talk about angelic beings, right, which it, it's not necessary, but the point is there to be made, they're the same thing. An angel is an angel, right? They are extensions of, of it's sort of, if you want to view them as a, as a neshama, a soul with no physicality, then also there's no real standard, right? We don't find anywhere in the Torah good or bad angels in terms of what God, they're all messengers of God. They're just fulfilling their duty. There is no bad or good. Even the ones who are bad are also in fulfillment of God's duty. They're doing something bad in fulfillment of what God wants them to do. They're just messengers of God. They don't have that same, they don't have free will, right? We don't find that the Torah is critical of the angel that wrestled with uh, Yaakov, Jacob. It doesn't, doesn't say anywhere, and he was a bad, evil person. And in fact, the Torah avoids mentioning anything really about his personality at all because he's an angel. There is no personality that he has. So, and in fact, at the end of the whole thing, he, he says that he has to leave, he has to leave, Dawn is coming, he has to leave. It's very unclear in the words of the Torah what exactly he has to leave for. And the Midrashim are universally in agreement. We know those of us who have a Mesorah tradition uh, of how to understand the Torah understand that it's because he had to leave because he had to sing praise to God. Because uh, that morning, in the morning, the angels sing praise to God. So he, he had a job to do, which was to go wrestle with Jacob. And then he had another job to do, which was to go praise God. So there, we don't find that these beings are judged by any such standard. Who is judged as good and bad? Only humans. And the point of that good or bad is because we are the only beings that can acquire good or evil. That's it. By, by, by doing good, we inculcate with ourself, within our self-goodness. And by doing bad, we inculcate within ourselves badness. Why? Well, think of it this way. If an angel was cut off from its spiritual connection to God, would it survive? Right? We don't know much about angels, but we, we can say that it's pretty obvious not. Their whole existence is then as an extension of God's being. God create, took a, like a little piece of himself and fashioned it into some kind of angelic being. And if you would cut off the connection between him and that being, it would be like, you know, a, a, a child... God forbid, in the womb, that's the umbilical cord got, got severed. It can't survive. The, the nourishment isn't coming. Animals, on the other hand, God did definitely create some kind of uh, external, seemingly external, nothing's really external to his will, but 
like to our perception, some kind of external force, which we call the nefesh Bahamas, the animal soul, right? There is some kind of animating force uh, that acquires its health and nutrition from this world, right? The animal needs to eat food. The animal needs to acquire nutritive value from nutrients and minerals in this world, right? Without those things, the animal will not survive. So God did a very unique thing. He fused those two disparate elements together. He took a soul and he took a animal and he fused them in such a way that the cohesion is complete. Again, this topic needs to be delved into at length, but we're not going to do that in this video. The main point that we need to know is that this fusion is total and complete, but at the same time, there are still two separate beings here. When you feed the soul, which we have inside us, the soul is more nourished and it becomes stronger. When you feed the body, the body becomes more nourished and it becomes stronger. In a perfect balance, then a person is neither pulled towards one way or the other because both parts of him are living in harmony. However, if the body becomes overly nourished, or I shouldn't say, or, or is more nourished while the soul is neglected, the soul's pull towards the things it wants, which is to be close to God and to be more like God, right? Because again, what is the standard of an angel? What is an angelic being? A being that just does God's will, that lives in accordance with God's will. It has no other choice. That is what it is. The soul wants to live in accordance with God's will, which is to fulfill whatever being God-like is, right? to have patience, to have love, to have mercy, to have kindness, to be giving, all of these attributes that we ascribe to God, the soul is, is nourished and desirous of being like that. Nourished by and desirous of okay. Whereas the human part of us, again, that the, the animal is just an animal. All it wants is to fulfill its animal desires. So if you eat, that feeds the animal part of you. If you procreate that fulfills the animal part of you so now it is more complex than that we're leaving out a lot of things like where does idol worship fall in well that's like a twisting of the soul to feed the animal desire there's there's complicated overlappings which each deserve again everything can be answered and should be dealt with but just not in this video however this paints a picture for us of how the human being operates when we say intelligent life there is no natural intelligence God, now you, you might ask why he had to do this. I don't know. But let's just look at what he did and not ask about the why because that is a, a separate topic. What God, what Hashem did was his method of creating an intelligent being was to fuse together two separate beings and because this fusion is so total and complete, the two separate beings within us are fighting for supremacy. And since the base of each one we are born with is a perfect fusion, since they're so perfectly balanced in their fight in a way that's beyond human comprehension, neither one can win. It's like a tug of war where your brain is stuck in perfectly in the middle so that tension is, is just perfection. And therefore, you are not drawn towards anything. 
we wind up almost by default, this topic really needs to be explored again, more in depth. And I'm giving it a sort of shallow baseline because again, the point is to get back to aliens and I feel uh, like I don't want to take this video too long. It's already long and I apologize, but I don't want to go too long. So let's again, just try and understand this one simple point. Not simple, this one extremely not simple point. The reason you have free will is because there is an angel inside of you and there is an animal inside of you. And the angel and the animal are pulling you with, at, at least at your birth, an exact amount of force that is perfectly aligned in each direction. So much so that you are left in limbo. When you are born, there is simply no pull for you more in any direction. All right? Now, that's not perfectly true because obviously a baby, right? There, there's, again, this requires a lot of depth and explanation because if you look at a baby, a baby is certainly more concerned with its needs uh, physically than it is spiritually. So yes, there is like this trigger mechanism that God put into play that as you grow, the, the soul's power sort of grows exponentially so that the way as your body grows, the animal part of you grows and then the intellectual soul part of you uh, sort of gets like a, like a boost so that it could come in there and start pulling you in another direction, right? So it's, it's not so simple. There's a lot of depth. And, and why did God do it that way? Good question. We can answer that as well. But again, that, not for now. The point is that at the point in your life where those two forces equalize, right, which theoretically in the Torah's parlance and an easy way of understanding it would be at your bar mitzvah, 13 years old, which is supposed to coincide with the onset of puberty. Uh, in biblical times, it was not measured by a specific age. I believe it was measured actually by puberty. So at that point, you are this perfectly harmonized being, right? Now, this is again, Again, this is so deep because we also have to look at psychological factors and what if a person was, God forbid, abused and not everybody has the same opportunities and grows up in the same households. But in theory, the blank template of a human being is one where at a certain point in his life, when he starts on the path to adulthood, he is simply not pulled. Meaning when he looks at something that is a purely physical pleasure and he looks at something that is a, is a spiritual pleasure, he's just not pulled towards either one. He's left in limbo. And therefore, he can now say, wait, I'm not, I'm not being pulled anywhere. So what should I do? This is the critical element. An animal simply can't do that. If the, animal, if the animal's body is desirous of food, the body, the animating force that animates the body is the animating force that animates the entirety of the animal. So if the animal is hungry, then the denial of food is not an option. But because the human being is equally pulled towards spiritual pursuits, which are not satisfied by food, I can look at the food and, and, and the, the soul part of me says, I don't care for that. And so even though I'm hungry, I could deny myself that food. Something an animal, again, does not have the option of doing. Right? That's important. It would come out then that intelligence is a, is a aspect or a perhaps um, requirement in the fulfillment of God's ultimate goal, as the Derech Hashem said, which is that we can acquire perfection. We can become, or, or not true perfection, we'll never acquire that as a human, but the, path, the goal is, is to be on that path. 
we can move towards perfection, towards perfecting ourselves, because of the way God made us. This is a specific feature for human beings, and the point of which is this specific thing, to acquire perfection. So that means that God, when he was designing us, had a goal, an ultimate goal. And that ultimate goal is, I want to design a being specifically, this whole universe was created for this one reason. This entire universe with a quintillion stars and millions of galaxies and trillions of light years of space was created for one sole purpose so that there could be a being in it that can acquire perfection using this system of not being pulled in either direction and therefore having its own ability to make free choices. That being designed by God is necessarily the most perfect being for this job. Well, how do I know? Well, again, that we need to have its own separate video. But because the philosophical rationale would dictate that God, if there was a more perfect being, then God wouldn't have created us. Why would God settle for a, a secondary possibility? And again, we, it is of necessity that we be perfect in terms of that balance. If there was a being that could be more perfectly balanced, then God would have gone with that. Because that's his only goal. Which means that as far as we can tell, intelligence is not a function of a, of a, there is no natural existence that God created called intelligence. There is no natural function that we can observe. We observe God's creation and we see that there is no such thing as, oh, God created us and we just, we are intelligent. That's just it. There's like an order of life forms. That's not true. Only because we are drawn towards a spiritual thing. We're not just a higher form of animal that uses our intelligence to design tools and, and uh, civilizations, all in fulfillment of our animal pleasures. It is distinctly true that we can observe in human beings that there are those who pursue things that are not in their animal interests. Right? There's a, there's a tremendous depth to this topic that I'm not going into. But it is clear that human beings pursue things and therefore we are philosophically bound to come to the conclusion that there is a reason human beings are now. So people say, oh, it's because of the development of the conscious. There is no scientific basis for that. Just as there is no scientific basis, uh, basis for evolution. If one is curious, you could look at Harvey Lee Spetner's book, Not By Chance, incredible book by a PhD uh, researcher who spent 20 years getting into the micro and macrobiology of DNA who conclusively shows in his book beyond any refutational uh, you know, ability that evolution is a joke. I mean, the whole idea is, is absolutely a disastrously flawed theory that cannot be true, right? In the same vein, we cannot look at intelligence and see something that it is possible to exist on its own in a vacuum. Intelligence is clearly a function of the conflict within us that draws us in two separate directions. All right, I've harped on this topic long enough. I'm going to stop. I think you get the point. The point is, um, why would there be an alien race that has that? Maybe there's life forms on other planets that are animal-like. Maybe if we, found, if we traveled far enough, we would find an inhabited planet that has some kind of being on it that is animal-like. I could not only believe that, 
I, I would say that it's likely even because the same reason that God created a world that looks natural in order to give people the ability to deny his existence so that we could be even, right? So we have this even playing field. There had to be an ability to deny God. So yeah, it's very possible, maybe even probable, that out there there are some beings, maybe even very high-functioning animals, right? We, we definitely find on this planet there are you know, certain apes and, and, and dolphins and whales. There are certainly things that are extremely intelligent and can design some kind of primitive levels of shelter to protect themselves from weather phenomena. Maybe we would find very high-functioning animal-like beings on different planets. And scientists would immediately declare, we have defeated religion. Clearly there is no God. Look, we found life on other planets. But that would be the only purpose of his existence. Why would there be an intelligent being? Intelligence is not a natural function. It only exists for this purpose. And this purpose is fulfilled in us. So no, I do not believe that there is aliens uh, that are intelligent. Because I think that in fact, it is not a compatible relief, belief with, uh, with uh, religion, and certainly, certainly not with a Abrahamic view of religion. And if there's anything you'd like me to elaborate on, I would be thrilled to, because we, I really tried to condense something that is an extremely deep concept, which is based on a number of extremely deep subconcepts, into a, a basic explanation of why I think that it is not compatible to believe in aliens and in Judaism. And it's been a real pleasure. All right, just just because I want to cover one current events topic, um, there was a, a a lot of a lot going on about the Kyle Rittenhouse case, and I don't want to take too much of a side in any direction. Um, not not because I don't have strong feelings about it, but because for what I'm about to say, it's not so relevant. So I, I do want to just talk about one quick thing in the Rittenhouse case. Um, Anna Navarro tweeted this. Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed Anthony Huber, 26, and Joseph Rosenbaum, 36, and injured Gage Grosskreutz, I don't know how to pronounce that, now 27. Think about how much their loved ones have cried real anguish and grief, not crocodile tears. The reason this tweet is so extremely reprehensible, um, extremely, and, and, I, and I mean I'm a very specific reason, is because she does not know that these are crocodile tears, but she is making an assumption, and that assumption is based on her perception of the facts in the case. Even if we could grant that she has some right to her assumption, some right to her perception, Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum were genuine, and this is not whataboutism, you have to understand, I'm talking only about her tweet and examining and unpacking her tweet in relation to itself. These people were genuinely terrible human beings. I mean, one of them did something to children that I don't even want to speak about openly. Um, but not, not, we're not talking about like assault, like the cutesy kind of assault. If you don't know, I, I don't even want to say it. You can Google it. But we're talking about the most horrible, sick crimes that a person could do to a child. They actually did. They were actually convicted of those crimes. That, and um, one of them was, uh, was convicted of, of the worst type and one of them was convicted of uh, some other kind of assault. Even if we just focus on um, Rosenbaum, who was, I believe, the one who was a, a truly despicable person. It's weird in relation to itself. Look at this and think, think about how much their loved ones have cried real anguish and grief. What a minimization of how awful this person is. 
What about serial killers? Like, there I I've seen documentaries about this. You know, the old old famous saying in the police is uh. You don't want to know where they run. They always run to the mama or to the baby mama, right? That's the famous phrase. Where did that phrase come from? The answer is because it's true. People run to their mother. Mothers always cry for their children. There are videos of serial killers, horrific people who have spent years of their life mastering the craft of murdering and dismembering other human beings. And when they're killed, their mothers cry. Do we have a society use that as some kind of ethical gauge? Do we do we be like, man, look at look at look at them look at the the, the, the serial killer's mother's tears. I mean, just horrible. Look at look at us as a society. What's what's wrong with us? Look at how we made this woman cry. Who cares? That's not how things are judged. This person is an objectively terrible human being. To, real in in a, as a, as a as a sort of counterpoint to like, think about how much their loved ones have cried and real anguish and grief. What do you mean real anguish and grief? Their their loved ones' real anguish and grief is not relevant to how terrible they were, and therefore your judgment of his tears being crocodile tears because he's a terrible person because maybe he's fake crying at having killed this terrible person is bizarre. I, I don't know if I'm expressing what I'm trying to say here clearly. Uh, let, me, let me try and rephrase it. She doesn't really know if these are crocodile tears. If she would have just said, I think Kyle Rittenhouse's tears are crocodile tears, I would have said, I think she's wrong, but okay. But that's not what she's doing. What she's doing is she's playing the sympathy card for a horrible person to try and gain your sympathy to make you perceive Kyle Rittenhouse's tears as terrible. Do you see the difference? She's saying, think about the anguish and pain of the loved ones of this person and looking at it through the lens of the tears that were shed over Joseph Rosenbaum, looking at it through that lens, then look at Kyle's face and think, man, Kyle must be terrible. That's only a, a, an okay point to make if Joseph Rosenbaum is a saint. If Joseph Rosenbaum is like a really, really good person who we can examine his life and say, wow, everybody should be a Joseph Rosenbaum. Then we would say, you know, how Kyle Rittenhouse got into a situation where he had to shoot Joseph Rosenbaum, I don't know. But I know that Joseph Rosenbaum, like, man, that guy, what a guy. And, uh, and therefore, I, I just have to look at Kyle and think that these, these have to be crocodile tears because Joseph is so great. But if Joseph Rosenbaum is a scum, if he's a terrible, terrible person, then how dare you use sympathy for him as a way of showing us that we should not have sympathy for Kyle? That's nuts. You're, you're trying to counterpoint Kyle's like, like fakeness because of Joseph Rosenbaum's goodness. But Joseph Rosenbaum isn't good. So what that really means is that you're trying to emotionally manipulate people based on a false narrative that you're just trying to create. I think that's pretty scummy. And um, it, it shows where we are as a society that people are willing to engage in this kind of behavior um, with no real benefit 
that I could see to themselves other than to win some political points. Uh, I, don't, I don't see how it benefits Anna Navarro to tweet that. I don't, I don't see how this tweet does anything for her other than help her score political credibility. So she's talking about something she can't know, the internal feelings of another person. Um, the only thing she can know is that Joseph Rosenbaum's loved ones probably did cry for him, despite the fact that he's a truly awful, awful human being. Uh, and so why, why would she tweet this? It's just for political points. So to make us feel that Kyle Rittenhouse has to, has to genuinely be an awful person. Must be. We know, you know nothing about him. Um, I mean, at least you know nothing about the truth about him internally. That's for God. But why not tweet this out? Why not? Just to score some political points. What a sad world we live in. Anyways, if you have any questions, please. I love engaging with people. And it would be my honor. This is Laser Weiss, and this has been the Blazing Laser Show.